Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna be learning quite a bit from this female founder, super exciting conversation that we have uh, in front of us today. Uh, we're gonna be learning about building, about racing, and then also about exiting. Exiting, I mean, how exciting is that? So I guess without further ado, Michelle Cordero, welcome to the show today. Thank you, so happy to be here. So originally born in Pennsylvania in a rural town. How was life there? <laughs> Quiet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Quiet. <laughs> Filled with cornfields and open pastures. No, it's a beautiful place to be raised as a child. That's for sure. And how did your parents end up there? Both of my parents um, moved to the United States from India, um, where they were born and raised. They came to the country on their own individually met um, at the university in, uh, in Indiana, Notre Dame, and took their first jobs um, actually in this area of Pennsylvania and never left. Nice. So do you, do you think that that perhaps developed a little bit that entrepreneurial spirit on your end of, uh, you know, going out there and, and kind of like going and getting what, what, what you think is yours? Uh, I'm sure subliminally it had a lot of impact on the way that I approach life. Absolutely. And what about that love for business? Um, I think that just came, you know, as I, I was, as I was growing and um, exposed to different avenues. I mean, at the age of 14, my mom got a phone call from um, a motel down the street saying that I was there applying for a job. I rode my bike there the day that I turned 14 because I knew that was the year in which I could officially get um, a job with a paycheck and a W-2. So I don't know that it had to do necessarily with the um, environment that my parents raised me or their story. I think some people just have a different sensibility about them because my siblings are quite different um, from me. So I think it's more so just how we all perceive the experiences that we were having and, and where we wanted to take them. And then why, why Pittsburgh, Michelle? Sure. Well, you know, in my family, we were always very cash conscious and, and financially smart. And so I wanted to go to a school in the state, um, but went to the school on the other side of the state <laughs> so that I could create my own life. I mean, what, one thing that I'm really amazed is uh, how do you, you know, graduate there and then say, OK, I'm going to go to perhaps New York City? 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I growing, growing up, you know, 90 miles, you know, two hours outside of New York city, I was always just mesmerized by the opportunity and the energy of the city, especially growing up, um, in a community that is influenced by, you know, Amish. It's very quiet where I was raised. We didn't even have a stoplight in the area. Um, and I was just so hungry for that energy, that spontaneity, and, uh, most importantly, the opportunity that New York city had. And, you know, when I was graduating from Pittsburgh, there was a lot of jobs in the Pittsburgh area. Um, but I really just wanted a job in New York. And so we actually started going to job fairs at schools that weren't ours, like Rutgers and schools in Connecticut, um, trying to find jobs in New York. And that's actually how I secured my, my role at Federated. So how was that the first day when you arrived here into the city and you saw this concrete jungle, you know, especially being used to, to being in a rural town? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, New York City is, is where it's at when you're really trying to build a career, um, one, in, in fashion and business, but two, um, with a pathway that is unknown and you can just see where it goes. So what were you doing at Federated? So my first job um, was amazing um, because I didn't go to design school. I didn't go to fashion school, um, but I was able to be surrounded by creatives. And I remember the thing that sold me in the interview process was they said, you know, while you could have a career in finance and focus on the intangible here in fashion merchandising, you could essentially really flex your business muscle, but work on something beautiful and tangible. Um, and so for me, my first role was actually a training program in which I had a 12 week experience understanding how products were created from concept all the way through to the customer. Um, and then after that program, you were placed in an area at random, um, pretty much. And the area that I was matched with was lingerie. Very cool. And for how long were you doing this? So I was there for a couple of years. Um, I actually went to May Company for a couple of years before Federated bought May Company. And in that term, I decided that I wanted to get closer to the customer. While I saw us creating amazing concepts, beautiful products, as they were going through the filter of wholesale and department stores, they were getting muddied down and the concepts were no longer holding true. Um, so I was really fortunate that I could go to VF Corporation and start working on brands um, like Nautica and Kipling and really start to see what it felt like to create product with the lens of one holistic brand and that idea of brand equity. And then you make the jump to Victoria's Secret and especially during a time of incredible growth and, and incredible branding, no? because, uh, you know, the Victoria's Secret fashion show now, I mean, it's televised absolutely everywhere. So it's, um, it, how, how was that experience for you? Yeah. So, you know, in this quest to continue to get closer to the consumer, while I had made a couple of steps forward by moving to VF Corporation and working on brands like Nautica, those brands were still reliant on the department stores for the majority of their sales. And so when Victoria's Secret um, called with an opportunity, I jumped at the chance because this would be the first time in which I could work for something truly vertical, creating something from concept and seeing it literally hit the stores owned by them, the website, you know, created by them and written by them. Um, so for me, it was one of the most tremendous opportunities because being someone who's, you know, really fascinated with the power of brand, this is a brand that had 35%, almost 40% market share at that time and double digit operating income. I mean, it's one of the best 
stories you could find from a business and fashion perspective in that time. And what would you what would you say that was your biggest takeaway about branding? Because I mean, the way that Victoria's Secret ad has positioned itself is is remarkable. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, working for Les Wexner is one of the most tremendous opportunities you know anyone in the in the merchant community can have because he really tells you and teaches you how to build brand, and that's through you know a really strong discipline to being concise to being consistent and to being focused so anywhere you go in the world and you hear victoria's secret regardless of what language or culture you're in everyone in their mind has the same image which is angel fantasy and push up um and everyone sees the pink and the supermodels it's just a very consistent story told over and over and over again, and they never wavered. Um, and additionally, you know, he really thinks about building a brand, like creating a movie, you know, and I was fascinated by that. He would say, you know, the, the models that you put in the images, those are your actors and the words that you put in your copy, that's your script. So what kind of movie are you writing? That's amazing. And here you are, you know, working at a company, especially in, in New York. I mean, Victoria's Secret is absolutely everywhere. So why, you know, going from something like that and, you know, joining a startup? Sure. Yeah. So for me, you know, after being there for, um, you know, several years, I had gotten married. I started to think about my life. Um, and two things really came to mind. One was I knew I was going to have children soon, hopefully. And I thought about, you know, the time that I spend at work and how dedicated I was to my career. I knew that I was going to sacrifice time with my family and my children if I continued on this corporate path. Um, I didn't see a space in which the incredible leaders above me who were female were living balanced lives between their family, their children, and their work. The work always trumped. Um, the other two. Secondarily, from uh, a business perspective, I didn't feel that I was connecting with the brand the way that I used to. I wasn't wearing the products anymore. I was yearning for things that were more around my individual body type. And most importantly, I was looking at these marketing campaigns that we were creating and I was feeling bad about myself um, because I didn't look like Candace or Lily or the other supermodels. (laughs) And it was physically impossible for me to do so. And as I thought about having children one day, I wanted to have a brand for my daughter where she looked at herself and said, yes, I'm one human individual and our uniqueness is our superpower and I'm going to own it and be so proud. Nice, nice. So then, so then, jumping to Thrillist. Let's let's talk about Thrillist. Yeah. So when I, you know, I quit my job at a Fortune 500 company with tremendous profitability in stock. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, realized that while I wanted to start a company, I had no idea how. I yeah. had been, you know, tremendously coddled by corporate America with incredible opportunities and learnings, but I had no idea how to start a company. I didn't know how to build a team, how to connect all these cross-functional departments. Um, And so I decided to, you know, I tell people I crossed 14th Street into the startup space of Manhattan and just started to have conversations. I got really lucky um, that Thrillist Media Group had just bought a flash sale company called Jack Threads. And as we know, um, you know, in 2010 through, you know, 13, flash sale companies um, were a big part of retail at that time post um, recession. And so it was a great opportunity for me to see a company really go from single digit millions in revenue to double digits in the span of, you know, 18 months. 
Very cool. So this was kind of like your, you knew at this point that you wanted to build your own business, but before doing that, you wanted to really understand what were the dynamics and the process. Exactly. And I wanted to understand the impacts of social media and content on um, commerce. And at the time, a lot of corporations, while they had mobile sales, there were single digits in terms of penetration to the overall business. And it wasn't really a conversation that anyone was focusing on. Um, but if you cross 14th Street and you went to the startups, they were all really engaged in the beta of Facebook and what was happening with social media and the impact you could have by bringing those two worlds together. That's amazing. You know, like uh, the founders, you know, typically what they do is they just either jump right at it, you know, from school or, you know, they are in corporate and they just, they just go into it. I, th I find that, you know, being in a startup where you can see how things, you know, work and what are the dynamics or perhaps working at a VC firm where you get to also have exposure to, to these founders is definitely the, the best way to go and the best lessons that you can get and, and take with you when you, when you actually go at it on your own. So I guess in your case, Michelle, you know, probably during this uh, two years, almost three years that you were with, with Thrillist, I'm sure that you were taking some very good notes uh, and really <laughs> learning a lot, right? Because you knew your time was going to come about, you know, fairly quick. So what were some of those things that you were really, you know, keeping, keeping in mind and what were the, the biggest takeaways for you? Sure, sure. Yeah, I like to say my time at Thrillist, while I don't have my MBA, I feel like I have my startup MBA <laughs> from <Right>. that time. <laughs> um, you know, I would say some of the biggest takeaways that we saw were we were acquiring customers, you know, a couple hundred thousand a month because of the beta of Facebook at that time, you know, a dollar and change per customer. It was in an incredible time for us. Um, and so while we were acquiring all of these customers, growing quite quickly and profitably, we weren't thinking about the idea of retention. Um, and that caught up with us quite quickly because as Facebook started to mature and the pricing on that platform started to mature, the hit to our P&L um, started to become quite clear as we were, the word retention wasn't being, you know, really discussed until um, we realized we could no longer rely on acquisition as heavily. Um, so one of the biggest takeaways I had when I created Lively was we will be a retention-based company. We will look at retention before we look at acquisition to ensure that we're acquiring the right users for the long-term profitability of the organization. Um, the second key thing that I learned was the importance of team. And when a company is growing that fast, the natural reaction is to grow your team in parallel at that rate and that speed. Um, but it's very difficult to actually nurture an organization and the rate at which a team grows at that pace, you know, companies growing triple digits, the culture can quickly um, become compromised. And so that was the second thing that I really wanted was to ensure that we built a culture that trumped the spreadsheet of the business. Because if people aren't having the best time at work, they're not giving you their best work. Um, and that's something we've really seen come to fruition here at Lively, not without its, uh, you know, failures along the way, but the idea of team and remaining scrappy through tremendous growth um, is is very very critical. And then, lastly, what I would say is on the on the board and on the investor side, being inc incredibly focused on making sure you're surrounding yourselves um, with people whose core values are 100% aligned with where you want to see the business grow and how, um, and making sure that you know. 
whether it's a linear curve that you're seeing for the long term or a roller coaster in which, you know, is what I expected with Lively being in retail, that everybody's on the same page. That's very powerful, uh, Michelle. And, you know, one thing that, that I was just uh, thinking, you know, was during this time, during these almost three years, did you know, you know, even before perhaps you joined that you wanted to create Lively or was Lively something that, that really was born during the experience or incubated during the, the experience of being with Thrillist? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, one of my bosses from Victoria's Secret reminded me of this recently. Um, during one of my annual reviews there, uh, apparently when I wrote down my, my five-year goals, my, one of my goals was to be a CEO, <laughs> <laughs> an ignorant, eager young woman. Okay. <laughs> wrote that. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to create, um, a company or run a company, but I didn't know what it was. And so the idea really started to formulate as I was there learning, um, and understanding where my passion and my expertise and my curiosity would come together. So then at what point was Lively tangible in your mind? Sure. Um, so I would say towards the end of 2014. Um, and then finally, when I met my first investor in early 2015, it was like the world presented me with an opportunity um, to finally take the ball and run with it. So how is this possible? So you meet with an investor just with, with some, you know, idea in your mind, you know, and still being employed. Like, can you, can you tell us about this? Because typically people are like, oh, you know what? I'm going to take the leap of faith. Then I'm going to start putting a prototype. And here you are, you know, like just saying brainstorming and having discussions, you know, before you have even given your notice. No, of course. Yeah. You know, I say I hit lotto um, in January, 2015, I was connected by an old, um, you know, someone that worked at Victoria's Secret and knew someone I was working with at Jack Threads, um, who basically had taken over a 70-year-old manufacturing company. He was third generation. And he saw what Warby Parker, Harry's, Casper, et cetera, what were doing, disrupting their spaces and realized, well, I have one of the world's greatest supply chains within lingerie. I want to have a direct-to-consumer company um, supported by my infrastructure and had been spending years trying to start an online um, brand and finally decided, well, this is really hard. <laughs> I'm going to use my supply chain and instead um, hopefully incubate or back someone. Meanwhile, I'm really, you know, you know, formulating this idea. And then I meet someone who's literally like, well, I have supply chain. I have capital. Do you have the brand and the know-how? And we came together and the answer was yes. Wow. So then what happened next? So, uh, you know, in August of 2015, I left Thrillist, um, cause obviously it's a process, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, to create a company. And at that time, Lively was still without a name. It was brand X and I left uh, my job on a Friday and I came to an empty office on a Monday and started brand X. And, uh, you know, I was terrified. I was by myself with, you know, an investment in the bank. It was my Right after my 35th birthday, actually on the day of my 35th birthday is when I took the investment. So everything <laughs> kind of had this, you know, magical milestone in my life. Right. And I, I'm sure, I, I'm sure I, I have an idea on what was your wish when you were blowing the candle, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't mess this up. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh, uh, and. So I was terrified. I sat down at my desk at which I'm sitting at today and I started just creating a list 
Um, and I started writing names and categories and the categories were areas in which I was most terrified. Um, so it was, the list looked like, I don't know anything about fulfillment and logistics. I know very little about customer service. I wish I knew more about digital marketing. I, I don't even know how to use Google analytics. And then the other column were the people who I felt knew those areas the best, um, that were either in my network or one or two people away. And I spent the first couple of months just connecting and building a network of support around me so that I could focus on the brand. How, how, how hard was it to be a solo founder on this? Um, I would say mentally, I was really ignorant. I would come to work every day the same way that I did in corporate America. I, I would get up at the same time. I would come to the office and spend the same amount of time every day. Um, but it was a little dark and lonely because I'm talking to myself. And so what I did was I filled my calendar with meetings with people that I knew would inspire me and keep motivating me to the next step, but most importantly, educating me on what to do. And I was specifically targeting founders who were two to three years ahead of me so that they weren't too far away from where I was today. And they could really tell me where their mistakes were and where their successes were. And I could almost use it as a hack to get going faster. Um, and it really did propel me. You know, I went from starting in August of 2015 with no name, no product, you know, a very fluffy concept, um, but launched in April. That's amazing. So what did you launch in April? What was the business model? Yeah. So the, the model was simple. Um, it was essentially taking the, the business model of Victoria's Secret, which, you know, is a very, um, very high margin categories with, um, areas in which women are most vulnerable bras specifically. And if you can really engage with a woman in the category of bras, you can really win her trust and have abilities to go into other areas that are also high margin, like swim and beauty potentially down the road. But the twist on all of this were, uh, a couple of key factors. Number one, this brand would not be created by me or by a company. It would be created by a community and we would leverage social media and focus groups to really build out what the brand pillars, the images, the voice, the tone was. And the thesis was if we did that with the community, we would have to be right yeah. <laughs> because we're taking trend lines around women that, you know, are all over the, the, the United States. Number two, we would take everything that we learned in retail and flip it on its head. So we would only have one price point, even though we're paying manufacturers multiple price points. We wanted, you know, equality, what we call price equality, where consumers could buy what they want, regardless of size or color or style. And number two, we would never take markdowns or sales for two reasons. That compromises brand equity, but it also muddies your KPIs. So it's really difficult to see what's actually happening within your business and how the heart rate is beating, whether it's, you know, striking something that's raising your heart, whether it's traffic or whether it's plummeting because something went wrong. Um, and I would say number three is we would have a relentless discipline to the brand values and stay focused. Um, so that meant that we would stay extremely tight on distribution and only sell in areas that we controlled from end to end until we felt like the brand um, had a very clear voice, tone, and image. And, I'm, and I was very excited to hear, you know, earlier, you know, like that one of your key learnings was uh, retention, you know, because I think that people don't really think about that, you know, enough. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, if you're just focused on the acquisition, then you're just throwing more customers into a leaky bucket. So in this yeah. case, when you had learned, you know, and, and you were really clear about applying that retention for Lively, what did retention at its best look like? 
Sure. Um, so it was pretty interesting the way that we approached it. While our product has an, a tremendous value prop, you know, at Lively, all of our bras are $35, regardless of what bra you're purchasing. But our promise was we would never leave with price. And so the idea was if we were going to build a, a customer base that truly love the brand, um, that's how we can really build long-term retention because they're here for what the brand stands for, just not what it costs at this moment in time. And so when we would market and share the brand, it would be to women of all ages, demographics, household incomes, et cetera. But the, you know, the thread line was they had a commonality and they believed in the idea of wild hearts and boss brains, high style means ultimate comforts, the mantras of what our brand was saying. And because of that, when we started to sell the brand, we shipped to every state in the United States within 45 days without paid media. We look at our household income and it's a rainbow of women from, you know, five figures all the way through seven. And when we look at the age ranges, it's from 18 to 65. But when you think about retention, all of these women of all different types of varieties came to us not knowing the price. When they clicked on the homepage, the conversion was through the roof because they they recognized this beautiful product that stands for what I believe in is $35. And I'm going to buy not one, I'm going to buy three. Very cool. Very cool. And you were also talking about culture. So uh, you knew obviously here that that, that was going to be a critical component. Uh, so obviously, you know, you as the founder, you're the one that, that is going to influence the culture of the business. So so tell us about, you know, some of the uh, early critical hires that you made and how did you make sure that, that that culture that you envisioned was going to stay and that it was going to be for the long run? Sure. Yeah. So Um, You know, going back to my initial goal, which was to create an environment for women where they could be, you know, best at career and best at, you know, family. Um, The first hire I actually made was my creative director, Sarah, who's still with us today. Um, She actually found out she was pregnant right after we met. And um, we created a flexible schedule for her where she came in, you know, three days a week and was able to be, you know, extremely successful here building lively with me, um, but also be successful at home. The second um, key hire was a graphic designer. Um, Ariana, who started, you know, just interning for me because her, her artwork was so beautiful. And she was like, I just want to be a part of Lively. I'm like, I don't know that we have a role, but her passion for the brand was so strong. She kept submitting, you know, pieces of art that she would just, you know, come out of nowhere and say, this is what I can do. This is what I can do until finally I said, okay, you have a seat at the table. Just, just start creating with me. And then third, um, was my director of brand marketing because community was so important to us we had to have focus groups and social media guide the brand. Um, Other than that, the only hire we made right before launch uh, was for digital marketing, but that person actually ran customer service because we didn't want to spend a dollar on paid marketing until we knew the brand had legs organically. So talking about putting some some legs on the brand organically, what were some of the most uh, powerful initiatives that you guys, you know, saw really showing results for this? Sure. It starts with the idea of us building the brand with focus groups. So we would literally take down Airbnbs on the Bowery and have, you know, a dozen women come into our room and we would bribe them with wine and cheese and the idea of building the next, (laughs) you know, global brand. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was about the wine and cheese. Um, And we would put images on the coffee table and say, what's the first word that comes to your mind? And if they wrote, 
you know, empowered and confident, we would keep them. And if they wrote provocative, sexy, we would put those to the side. And we created a trend line until we got to one or two images that we felt really honed in on what we were trying to, um, you know, really portray. Even with the words, like women weren't comfortable saying the word panties or they felt underwear was masculine, but they were super comfortable with the word undies. And that's the word we use within our brand. Um, so I shared this because we took all of this content and really created a very succinct yet proven dialogue to have on social media and an email. And we were able to quickly build an ambassador network on Instagram by using this, these images and these words where women would DM us. Um, and we purposefully curated about a hundred women across the country because we wanted a brand that appealed to, to many different types of women, not just New York and California. And we said, we don't want women with a lot of followers. We want women that have feeds that demonstrate the principles of our brand. So we took that first tool and we used Harry's code on a referral friend campaign. Um, I know a lot of people in our startup community remember when they launched they got 100,000 emails through a referral program. And then they were kind enough to put that code out on open source for the rest of the world to use. Now, they did this in 2011. We did this in 2016. And the difference was, you know, we thought we would get maybe 5,000 emails a week over the four weeks when they got, you know, obviously 25,000. We got 133,000 emails in 48 hours. And the reason wow. was Lincoln Bio. <laughs> Lincoln Bio didn't exist in 2011, but it did in 2016. And we had a viral email campaign where we had 300,000 sessions globally in two days. But what, what, what was exactly the dynamics or the process of this referral program? How did it exactly work? Sure. It was simple. It Basically, you got an email. We emailed 250 people on a Friday because there was three of us here. And that's how many emails we had in our, in our Gmail accounts of people that we knew. <laughs> and the email basically said, you know, um, inspired by wild hearts and boss brains, meet lively, launching April 1st. For every email that you collect through our program, you're going to get a point towards your first lively purchase. And it would be, you know, 10 points towards a pair of undies or 20 points towards a first bra. But the key factor was nobody knew the cost of the product. All they knew was wild hearts, boss brains, and this image of ultimate style and comfort. And in literally that evening, after 250 emails were sent, we got to 1,000 that evening. The next morning, 5,000. Lunchtime, 10,000. By that night, it was a Saturday night, we had over 90,000. Oh, my God. And what was going through your mind? Were you getting a little bit nervous? Like, oh, my God, oh. what, what have we done? <laughs> I was terrified. I'm like, first of all, we've been hacked <laughs> because yeah. it cannot be real. Um, but our developers were like, no, Michelle, this is absolutely real. And I'm like, well, I don't even know what we gave away. Did we just give away all of our inventory? Because we weren't smart enough to create, you know, a backend system that showed us what tier people were hitting. I'm like, did we just give away every bra that we bought for launch? Um, and you know, luckily and sadly, the whole thing blew up by the next morning, the servers crashed and everything came crumbling down. So the first thing we did was we turned on every ser channel of customer service because the question running through my brain was why? Why were all these people signing up in Australia and Russia and Asia and the United States? Like, what was it? Um, and so we were able to start chatting and emailing with all of these women. 
Well, that's amazing. Amazing validation early, early on. Product market fit at, at its best. You know, typically, you know, like it takes a bit of time until you have this amount of people coming coming through the door like that. But I guess uh, here, Michelle, uh, in terms of uh, of fundraising, because obviously you you had to keep up as well with with scaling this. So, how much capital did you guys raise prior to the acquisition? Sure. So, um, before launching the company, I took a, a million five note. Um, for my first investor, who was my manufacturer. Right after we launched, I added two more investors. Harvey Sanders, a strategic, uh, who actually built and sold the brand Nautica and sits on the board of Under Armour pre-IPO, and one VC, um, GGB Capital. Those three investors invested a total of $15 million. And how was it like to, um, because obviously, very unfortunately, the investor, you know, segment has been male dominated, but thank God, you know, that's, that's changing. So yeah. I'm sure that you encounter, you know, that, uh, that moment where you were probably pitching, you know, a dude, you know, a brass. So how was that like? Um, so, you know, I was lucky on the investor side, um, you know, because I had a, a female reach out to me from the VC, GGB Capital, Robin Lee. She reached out as a customer and just really excited about Lively. Um, but where I did run into, you know, interesting issues when, uh, when I was meeting with, you know, prospective PR firms or, uh, you know, other, other big, um, cross-functional supports, I would get comments like, Oh, let me go get someone with boobs or hold on. Um, can you just send me one so I can ask my wife <laughs> and I'm like, oh, on all products and investment? I'm just curious. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, so there was a little bit of that, but I think I have um, a strong backbone from growing up in, in corporate America, to be honest, uh, wow. because you, you just build a thick skin and a voice. Um, that's the only way you're going to have a seat at the table at that time. Of course, of course. And and obviously for a company like this that is touching on consumer goods, fashion, lingerie, like what were some of the expectations that you were encountering from investors on each one of the rounds? Yeah. Um, you know, my approach is quite different, I think, than a lot of uh, probably entrepreneurs in the VC-backed space um, is and was. And, and I had a, a little bit more of a conservative approach because I always looked at my company as if it was publicly held having come from, you know, publicly held companies. And so I always thought about my board as shareholders where I didn't want to just meet my numbers. I wanted to exceed my numbers so I could, you know, have a great stock price. Um, you know, I kid with people, they laugh at me before I even had a board, I would have board meetings. (laughs) I would have my advisors come in because I always wanted to be held accountable. Um, I had every dollar accounted for in QuickBooks. I just knew that Lively was going to take off and accountability is so critical if you're going to be a company that's vast. Um, So for every round where I could have much higher valuations, I took what I knew I would not just beat, but I would smoke from a numbers perspective because I was thinking about the next round. I wasn't concerned about this round. I was worried about what's next. Yeah. And that's, that's actually very interesting because typically when you raise money, you gotta you gotta really keep in mind that the way that you're raising it today is going to impact the way that that you're raising tomorrow. So I I really appreciate that that you're mentioning this and and Michelle you've been you've been talking about the board you know obviously you know like before before even launching this company you knew that you needed to surround yourself by the right people and obviously at a board level you know from that thirty thousand view where they can help you on the strategic side of things is is critical. So that, how did you go about really? building the board and how did you go about using it effectively? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, again, <laughs> a little different, right? So our first investor was our manufacturer. Tremendous value that they brought um, and still do. They built a factory specifically for Lively. I mean, you can't get better than that <laughs> in terms of support because yeah. um, you have just the best in terms of um, read and react, supply chain, et cetera. Um, so that was one. I knew if I needed... If I was going to build a brand in the space of lingerie, I would have to have supply chain because it's one of the most difficult products to make. It has 25 to 40 components, suppliers, et cetera. So once I knew that was more than taken care of, I thought about the other vulnerabilities that I had. And for me, it was the idea of um, where is this company going to go? And you know, 60% of the time, a company doesn't make it past five years, 90% after 10 years. Who was going to help me? Who's going to be my mentor really navigating those paths? And that's where Harvey Sanders came in, seeing that he sold a company um, to BF and sits on a company pre-IPO. Lastly was a VC. Um, the VC was going to be able to connect me and keep me on the pulse of what was happening in terms of technology, in terms of valuations, in terms of future investors. So I was trying to really build together a board whose lifestyles objectives couldn't be more different than each other so that their sole focus in this conversation was about the uh, success of Lively. Very interesting. And one of the things that, you know, obviously just is coming to mind now is that, you know, you guys got acquired, you know, the, the company was acquired and, and it seems like you guys were just getting started. So, so why did you guys, you know, go for it? Yeah. Um, you know, we were just, this, this whole story has been a very serendipitous one in that we weren't for sale. <laughs> we, uh, were coming into 2019 gearing up to raise our, our next round of funding, our series B, um, and a banker walked into our office and said, there's a company that's interested in acquiring you. Would you like to start a conversation? And initially, you know, our thought was, well, we're not for sale. We just, we just got started. <laughs> um, but as we were, you know, navigating the investor community and having conversations about where we were going to take the future of Lively in the back of my mind, I'm like, the person that I've spoken to this year that has the most synergy in these conversations is walk hole. <laughs> they have the same core values that we do, but they got started, you know, in the late 1940s, 50s. And they've been doing this for decade after decade with a focus on consistency to brand and core values without markdowns or sales. Um, and most importantly, their product innovation and product know-how is superior um, within our community. So every time I was looking for well, who's going to be the next person to really enhance you know, this story of building a global brand that lives for decades on, well past you know, me, the answer kept being walk hole. <laughs> Got it. So then, so then, what happened? Did you speak with the board, and then you basically told the banker, "Okay, fine, <laughs> I'll accept having a conversation." I mean, how how was that? Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we had um, aligned on exploratory conversations, and we aligned that the first conversation would not be with numbers or performance, but only about values. And you know, something pretty incredible happened when. We scheduled that first meeting. It was in January of 2019, four years, literally to the week that I met my first investor. And when I went to the office of where the meeting was, it was the exact same building of 136 Madison. <laughs> wow. Wow. So everything had just come full circle. Um, and as we were having these conversations, you know, it's it was one of those meetings that we've all had where we didn't want it to stop. 
we were having so much fun and the energy was so strong and we could see the opportunity was so big um, that we quickly scheduled our next one, went to LOI within a couple months. And by July, we had, uh, you know, an SPA. That's amazing. So, so why why were they interested in 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 acquiring you guys, and and why that inbound interest? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, while Cole is an incredibly strong company and pillar within our community of of lingerie, and in the idea of really you know allowing women to feel uniquely beautiful, um, but they saw what was happening in the direct to consumer environment and with digital and social and so forth, and felt that they really wanted to enhance their know-how in this space um, and really accent their portfolio with a brand um, that was really speaking to, you know, millennials, et cetera, but also that had synergies with the values of what they bring. And so, I mean, they had been looking for quite some time. I think we were just really fortunate um, that we got on their radar and now they can see that they found a company who would not only help them, but who they could help. Right. And so it was a a two-way street that they were really looking to um, to partner with. So make us make us be insiders here, Michelle. What was what was that day like? The the day where you signed the acquisition. Uh, you know, most people have a different view of what should have happened. I was extremely emotional that morning, the day of close. I was in tears. I I like I actually called my sister in law because I was having problems leaving my apartment. And the feeling, the way best way to explain it is. I feel like I will feel like this on the day that my daughter goes to college because, you know, Lively is another baby of mine. I, I, I brought her into this world from newborn and now she has officially gone to college with probably one of the most incredible, you know, companies in the world. And I still get to be a part of it. Um, but it was just such an emotional moment for me, coupled with just a four year adrenaline ride because we literally closed. My first investment was on my 35th birthday. We closed on my 39th. Got it. And I believe that the that the terms were made public or at least reported. Is that right? Correct. <laughs> Correct. Got it. I believe it was like around eighty-five million. So uh not bad. Not bad, Michelle. So I guess, you know, any any indulgence, you know, anything that you did, you know, that you always wanted to do? Uh, you know, not just yet. What's funny is I realized that um my family brings me ultimate fulfillment, as does this t- lively team and community. You know, I haven't gotten gone out there and bought a Ferrari or Maserati. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, if you do, I want to ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I'm still letting you know everything really settle and and taking this time to yeah. acknowledge just the beauty of this journey and um, you know what's coming next for Lively because this baby is still a really big part of my heart and I really want to see it through. So how do you think that this journey has shaped you as a, as a person and also as a professional? Yeah. I mean, I often tear up on my morning runs thinking about everything that has happened in the last four years, because it's allowed me to really recognize what we as human beings are capable of. Um, and you know, I had my son, Jack, I found out I was pregnant with him two months after launching Lively. Um, so I was building my family while I was building this company and building opportunity. And for me, you know, as human beings, the impact that we can have on the world is tremendous if we allow ourselves to really flex our mental muscle um, and take risks and experience failure. Wow. That's a, that's very, very profound. And, you know, one thing that, that I was think, thinking about now, you know, perhaps there is a, some female founders that are also listening to this. So 
So what kind of advice would you give them in terms of being able to, to, to be successful as a mother and as, and as a wife, and then also as a female founder to really find that balance somehow? Yeah, my advice was don't feel that you have to choose. Um, you know, after I had my daughter, Lydia, I realized I could create a human being in my body. <laughs> that is pretty incredible. And I just right. decided I was superwoman. <laughs> Got it. And I think as women, we play it safe. Um, And so my advice to women out there would be, don't fear the unknown, fear the not trying. I love it. I love it. And if you had the opportunity, let's say now, I mean, incredible ride, you know, with with the company. Uh, If you had the opportunity now to, let's say, speak to your younger self. To that younger self that was at Thrillers, you know, about to to maybe take the leap and, and really thinking about like that future as a businesswoman. What would be, you know, uh, going back in time and speaking to that, to that younger Michelle, what would be that piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self, knowing what you know now, before launching a business and why? I would say go easy on yourself and acknowledge the wins. Um, because I think when you, when you embark on this journey, um, you really feel the failures, but you don't uh, take the time to acknowledge the milestones and the wins along the way. And looking back now, I would have done that more so. Um, also, I would say uh, now looking back, I would say every failure that I had made me so much stronger. And I actually think about the entire idea of entrepreneurship as building a mental muscle, the way that you're building physical muscles during a marathon. It hurts like hell in the beginning, but it gets better and better and easier and easier and your endurance gets stronger and stronger. And, you know, just enjoy that ride because it's pretty incredible. It is pretty incredible. So, Michelle, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Sure. You know, so we are at Wear Lively, um, W-E-A-R-L-I-V-E-L-Y on Instagram, um, I'm at the underscore Michelle Grant and um, wherelively.com is where you can really see us in action. Amazing. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.